Thanks, Phil. Hi, everyone. Thanks to those who said hi back. That was quite nice. Uh, if you haven't met me, my name's Mark, and I'm employed by Trinity Bay as a student minister. So I work one day a week heading up Trinity Bay evenings, and I'm also studying full-time at the Bible College of South Australia as well. Um, it's, yeah, it's the first time I've had the chance to, to preach here this year as being as being part of TBE, so it's fantastic to be able to be here. Uh, to those of you who are here this morning as well, well done for coming along to both services. Uh, it's one of those rare services where we have someone different preaching in the evening to the morning, so a bit of variety there, at least. Uh, it'd be great if you could keep your Bibles open to page I think 1020, it was, uh, just to follow along with the passage. There's also an outline in the leaflets that should be on your seat, so that would just help you to follow along with some of the main points that I'm making. How about I pray, and then we'll have a look. Heavenly Father, thank you that we can gather together under your word. We just pray that um, as we reflect on these words of Jesus, and as I speak here today, that you'd help us to just see clearly what it is that you're trying to communicate to us here, and that you'd help us to, to know more about what it means to follow you, and just how much you love us, and how we might live out our lives for your praise and glory. Amen. I got a phone call, I think it was October or November last year, from a guy called John asking me if I was willing to come along to Trinity Bay and be a part of leading the Trinity Bay evening service. Now, it's a bit of a boring story because you know how the story ends, but at the time, it was, it was a tough decision for Alicia and I to make. Um, it meant leaving a church that we really loved and where we had a lot of really good friends. I'm not trying to make you feel bad here. I'm, I'm going somewhere with this. I'm, I'm a very rational, logical thinker, like engineering background and all that. And so the way I went about making this decision, the way we went about making this decision, was that I got a big whiteboard out, and Alicia can back me up here, and made a big list of all the, the pros and cons for moving to Trinity Bay. And as you can see, the pros won out in the end. Well, that was the way that we went about counting the cost for that decision. I wonder, have there been times when you've thought about what it costs to follow Jesus and wondered whether it was worth it? Uh, now, whether you're a follower of Jesus or just someone checking out what Christianity is all about, um, you've probably noticed difficulties or inconveniences of being a Christian that other people don't have to worry about. Well, the passage that we're reading here, Jesus is calling his followers to a costly and radical discipleship, one that really turns on its head the way that we're naturally inclined to think and to live. But it's a discipleship with an awesome reward. And the passage begins with Jesus choosing 12 apostles from among his disciples. So his disciples are, are those people who are following him and wanting to learn from him. An apostle means someone who is sent, so someone who is under God's authority. And in doing this, Jesus is effectively creating a new people. Now, the number 12 has a lot of symbolic meaning in the Bible. And in the same way that the 12 sons of Jacob back in the book of Genesis became the foundation for the people of Israel, so these 12 apostles were now becoming a new foundation for God's people. The, uh, the kingdom of God that Jesus proclaims 
involves establishing his disciples as a new people, set apart from the rest of Israel. So the act of choosing 12 disciples here is an initiation of this new people. And it ties in with what we read last week in chapter 5 as well about the, the new wine referring to this new way of knowing God through Jesus. And it also ties in with the very purpose of this book, which we saw back in the first few verses of chapter 1. The Luke we saw is writing this book so that his reader may know the certainty of the things that they've been taught about Jesus. For the first readers of Luke's gospel all those years ago, they were part of a church that had been established on the ministry of these apostles. And so these verses are here to assure us that the church's foundations are exactly the way that God intended them to be. Jesus chose these 12 apostles with the intent that they would learn from him, they would be his witnesses, and they would establish his church. And here we are, 2,000 years later, disciples of Jesus walking in the footsteps of these apostles. Now throughout Luke's gospel, Jesus invites people to be a part of this new establishment of God's people. And this call to follow Jesus is a call to a costly discipleship, but one with an awesome reward. The opposition from the Jewish leaders that we saw last week, for those that were here last week, is perhaps the first sign that the path that Jesus is going down won't be an easy one. And as we continue through the book of Luke over the next few weeks, uh, we're going to see that Jesus' disciples must be prepared to make sacrifices in their lives, for his sake. But the kingdom of God, with its everlasting blessing that Jesus promises, is a reward that far outweighs any cost. We see here in verses 17 to 36, a glimpse of the nature of that cost. Jesus stands before a crowd of people who had come to hear him speak and be healed of diseases and demons. He turns to his disciples And he explains to them the cost in outlook, the cost in popularity, and the cost in love that they're called to as his followers. But not without assuring them that these costs will be overshadowed by an awesome reward. Firstly, the cost in outlook. One of the costs of Jesus' disciples is that they won't find the same satisfaction in what the world has to offer as other people will. Instead, they will long for God to make things right. In verses 20 and 21 here, Jesus isn't promising blessing to all who are literally poor, hungry, and weeping. And in verse 24 and 25, he isn't promising misery to all who are well-off financially or well-fed or who enjoy a good laugh. It's not like Centrelink where a certain threshold of income makes you ineligible for God's blessing. A few of the uni students got that one. Jesus is contrasting the heart of the believer with the heart of the unbeliever. Verse 20, blessed are you who are poor. Now, if we think back to Colin's sermon three weeks ago, when Jesus talks about being poor, he's not meaning it in the, the socioeconomic sense, but he's referring to spiritual poverty. Now, it's not that Jesus doesn't care for those who are in spiritual poverty. 
I think that as we read through Luke's gospel and all of the other gospel accounts of Jesus' life, we see that very clearly that Jesus cares very much for those who are physically poor and physically weeping. But this passage is talking about something even deeper than that. To be poor in spirit means to understand that I stand before God guilty. I deserve his judgment and I rely on his mercy. So how are these spiritually poor people blessed? Well, yours is the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says. This kingdom that Jesus is bringing about belongs to those who recognize that they can't make things right between them and God on their own. But they know that God has provided a way through Jesus for them to be made right with him. Blessed are you who hunger and weep. Now this isn't referring to just any grief, but sadness at the world's rebellion against God and the suffering and evil that we see around us which results. It's the natural emotion of someone who is aware of their own spiritual poverty as they survey the world around them and see the broken relationship between God and humanity. And it's accompanied by a hungering for God's righteousness to prevail over evil. Now, regardless of whether you consider yourself a Christian or not, I think we all have those moments where we grieve at the state that the world is in. Uh, there's, you see things on the news pretty much every night that just make you wonder how the world got to where it is. And for anyone who has accepted Jesus as the king of their life, I think this grief at the state of the world goes beyond that even. We're not just grieved by things that bring pain to humanity in general, but we're grieved by anything in the world that we know is displeasing to God, even things that other people might enjoy. One of the things I find really hard as a follower of Jesus is when friends of mine who aren't Christian are having a laugh at how drunk they got on the weekend or other stuff that they've been doing and just wondering, just seeing that relational gap between them and God. What is enjoyable for them just brings great sadness to me as I see that. The disciple of Jesus feels the burden of living in a world where sin, the sin is that, that broken relationship between God and humanity, where sin affects everything. But in the face of this pain, Jesus promises that you will be satisfied. You will laugh. A day will come when God will make things right again. So what about those who are rich, well-fed, and who laugh? Well, it's a contrast between the person who is desperate for what only Jesus can provide and the person not wanting anything more than what the present world has to offer. The rich person here is the one who relies on riches rather than on God. And it's in stark contrast to the dependence and the spiritual poverty of the disciple who knows that he needs God's mercy. The well-fed person has all he wants. He has no need to hunger for righteousness. The one who laughs refers to someone who lives only to enjoy the present. Jesus is saying, this person has settled for a temporary pleasure that pales in comparison 
with the everlasting blessing that awaits the faithful disciple. I remember chatting to a guy that I did uni with. He was a really, really good guy. Um, he told me that he just felt no need to explore Christianity. He had no sense that he needed anything more than what life had already provided him with. I'm sure you know people that are in the same boat as that. Maybe that's where you're at now. Things are going pretty well in life and you don't see any real need for Jesus. Well, Jesus is saying here that the pleasures of this life are short-lived. There is a greater, longer-lasting richness that he's calling us to. A reward that will satisfy us so much more than this world ever could. Now, maybe you're someone who wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, but there's just something about verse 20 and 21 here that rings true with you. You are pained by the things that you've done wrong. You do grieve at the state of the world. You do long for something better. But those feelings just go unresolved in your mind. Well, I'd encourage you to stay with us as we continue through Luke's gospel and hear more of what Jesus has to offer. And please feel free to hang around and ask any questions that you want as well. The cost of being a disciple of Jesus is that we will be grieved at the opposition to God that exists in the world and in our own hearts. It's a radically different outlook on the world that Jesus is calling us to have. But we have the sure hope that one day God will make things right. We will be truly satisfied. We'll have no need to grieve. Being a disciple of Jesus will also be costly in popularity. Jesus tells his disciples in verse 22 and 23, Blessed are you when you are mistreated because of me. Rejoice and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven. And on the flip side, in verse 26, Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. Now, you might be reading that last bit thinking, well, Hang on, shouldn't I be acting in a way that people do think well of me? And I think the answer to that is yes. But there's a difference between being well thought of by people and seeking popularity. Now, I think if we try, we can take our faith in Jesus just far enough for people to like us. We can do all the bits that the Bible says about loving other people, treating them with respect, conducting ourselves well. But while staying arm's length from some of the things that people around us might dislike about Christianity. It's hard talking to people about sin because the thought of not being right with God is offensive. It's hard standing up for what the Bible says on certain things when we know there are people listening who will disagree. I was chatting to a guy a few weeks back, an atheist guy who was quizzing me on my thoughts on same-sex marriage, and I told him my view and his response was, no offence, but that point of view is pure evil. Now, starting that sentence with no offence didn't really soften the blow at all. Hearing something like that hurts. And of course, any conversation like that needs to be done with every effort to be loving and gracious in the way that you, you say it. But it's not something that can be tiptoed around forever. Are you prepared to lose a friend in an attempt to point them to the good news about Jesus? 
Are there relationships where you need to bring Jesus far enough into the conversation to risk causing offence? Or perhaps that's already happened and you're counting the cost that your faith has had on a relationship. The guy that I used to go to church with a few years back actually got disowned by his family back in India when they found out that he'd converted to Christianity in Australia. So it's an example of someone who really knew the cost of discipleship. This is another reason why I think Christian fellowship is so valuable. Every follower of Jesus risks being excluded and insulted as they live out their faith. And so it's important that we as a church family are there for each other, encouraging each other, loving each other. Living as a Christian in the world isn't always easy. We need each other's support. Wouldn't that be a great goal for our Sunday night gatherings and our Wednesday night home groups this year? If everyone here can look back at the end of the year and be thankful for the way that their brothers and sisters at TBE have supported them throughout the year in their faith. The encouragement that you give someone on a Sunday night might be invaluable for them as they head out into their lives that week. Now, what Jesus is saying here really turns on its head the natural inclination that we have to seek popularity. Following him may well cost us popularity. But Jesus wants us to know we can rejoice even in the midst of losing popularity for him. Because we know that our reward in heaven far outweighs the temporary pleasures of popularity here on earth. Finally, Jesus' disciples are called to costly and countercultural love for their enemies. Now, what Jesus commands in verse 27 to verse 36 here is radical love. To be a disciple of Jesus is to imitate the costly love shown by God. In verse 31, it's not do to others as they do to us, but as we would have them do to us. Now, to to the people listening to this originally who were living under oppressive Roman rule, and to Christians in the early church who would suffer severe persecution, this was no easy command. And nor is it for us today. Loving doing good and lending to those from whom we can expect the same in return is appropriate, Jesus says. But everyone does that. His disciples are to go further than that and show such favour to those from whom they know they can't expect the same. And he provides quite a staggering set of examples here of, of what this looks like. Now, Jesus isn't telling his disciples to actively seek to be robbed and beaten. You know, we're not literally supposed to respond to getting punched by pointing out other body parts of ours that the person can then punch as well. You know, I think Jesus expects some discernment on our part. The point is that we're not in any way to allow sin to dictate the way that we respond to the sin of our enemies. And even more than that, We're called to to pray for and seek the good of those who oppose us. 
Now, we're not to leave our front doors open and our bank cards lying around with the pin number on it so that people can freely take from us. But we should be willing to be deprived where love demands. Who are your enemies? Who are the the people who have intentionally sinned or who are sinning against you? Uh, For some of you, that would be quite a hard question to answer. You'll have to really think about that. Um, For others, you'll have a face in your head, in your mind, as soon as I say the word enemy. Maybe a, a school bully, a workmate, perhaps only a momentary acquaintance who said or did something hurtful to you. And for some of you, those who hate and mistreat you may be your own family members. Now, someone who was always a bit chubby as a kid, I used to get a bit of bullying in high school. And I remember my natural response was either desiring the, either a desire for the bullying to stop or for something bad to happen to the bully. And I imagine many of you have felt similarly in those sort of situations. And as I reflect on it, neither of those responses of of mine was particularly loving. The fact is, it's difficult to respond to hate and mistreatment with love and blessing. Jesus' call to seek the good of your enemy is a huge challenge. And it's not one that I want to trivialize. I know that many of us will be carrying scars from those who have hurt us. As difficult as it is to to pray for those who mistreat us, I think that's the place to start. Firstly, we need to pray for God to help us to love that enemy. Loving someone who hates us, it's not just something we can decide to do. We need God's help to move our heart in that direction by his spirit. We need God's help to know how we might best act in a way that's loving to that person. The way that you love the, the difficult workmates will be, that will look very different to the way that you love the hateful family member. And we're to pray for the good of our enemy, to pray for God's mercy on them, as hard as that may be for us. I read a book recently by a guy called Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, You may have heard of him. He was a minister in Germany during the time of the Nazis. He was uh, eventually imprisoned and killed by the Nazis at the end of World War II. In the book, he focuses quite a bit of attention on how the Christian should treat his enemy, which was probably very much on his mind, given his circumstances. He made the point that when we pray for our enemy, we're doing something for them that they're completely powerless to do for themselves. We're standing alongside them. We're pleading to God on their behalf. Now, it's, it's confronting to think that while the person sinning against us may have all the power over us, in the bigger picture, it's them who stands desperately powerless before God. And our love for our enemies points us to Jesus. Jesus who died on the cross for the sake of those who are done wrong by him. And that includes all of us. As Bonhoeffer writes, we owe our very lives to Jesus who treated us as brothers and sisters 
and drew us into fellowship with him. Even though by our sinful nature, we had acted as his enemies. Our enemies stand alongside us beneath the cross where Jesus died. We pray for our enemies because they are in need of God's mercy. Just like we are. Just as God was kind to the ungrateful and the wicked by sending his son to die for them, so we are called to extraordinary love. Because we know that on that cross, extraordinary love was shown to us. I think it would be quite naive of me to think that this vert, this passage makes it easy for us to love our enemies. I don't, I don't think that's the case at all. It's, it's a very difficult process to go through. And this is part of the cost of discipleship. Relinquishing your right to seek justice on your terms. Giving up your right to hate the person who has wronged you. Allowing them the chance, maybe, to hurt you again. Again, Jesus' teaching here turns on its head everything that comes naturally to us. It is radical teaching. But the reward for the disciple, which has been secured by Jesus dying for us and being raised to life again, is that you have a place in his kingdom to enjoy God's presence forever with no enemies, no spiritual poverty, no mistreatment, and no sin. It's because of the certainty of this reward that we can call ourselves blessed, even though we're aware of the spiritual poverty of ours and mourn the damage that sin has inflicted upon the world. We can call ourselves blessed even when we're hated and insulted for Jesus' sake. We can give up our rights to hate our enemies back, but instead show them love, knowing the extraordinary love that has been shown to us. Jesus calls us to a costly discipleship, but the reward he offers infinitely outweighs the cost. How about I pray? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have your words to read from. Uh, these are very confronting words that we have from Jesus. It really, it does turn on its head the way that we might be inclined to look at the world around us. And in many cases, it probably opens up hurt from our lives. And we can see how people have caused us pain through their insults or through the way that they've treated us. Uh, we just ask that as we reflect on these words, that you'd be helping us to see them in the bigger picture and to know that though we're called to a costly and radical discipleship and one that we will suffer from in one way or the other, that you've called us to a path that has a great reward. We just pray that you'd help us to keep that in mind, that you'd help us to reflect on these words and to think through the way that we might live as your disciples. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his sacrifice for us. We thank you that we have the hope of this sure reward through him. And we just pray that you'd help us to remember that at all times as we live out our lives for you. In Jesus' name, amen.